Well, let me add my welcome uh, to Mark's. It's great that you can join us, especially if you're new or visiting, as we kick off this series in Luke's Gospel, which will run through uh, to Easter in mid-April, which does uh, remind me to remind you to grab one of these. Uh, our home groups have started in this past week, so maybe you've already caught one last week and you've been with your group. But if you haven't started back or you're new to WBC and you'd like to be part of a home group, now is the time to jump in. So these are available too. And so please uh, grab one of those. Also, uh, our deeper podcast uh, that's run for the last couple of years, we have a, a weekly uh, reflection on the passage at more depth as people send in questions. So your opportunity starts now. Our first one will be recorded uh, this coming week. And so if there's anything that comes out of tonight or future weeks, you can just shoot an email to our church office and uh, we'll try and deal with that question in the podcast. We'd love you to be part of that and listen in as well this year. Well, let me pray for us and ask that God will uh, help us as we think about this passage together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that as we come to a section of your word which is so familiar to many of us, as we look at the final week of Christ's life, that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to see uh, just how you presented your Son and how the various responses uh, point us uh, to reflect on where we stand and our response to you. And we ask that you might be at work in us by your spirit tonight uh, to convict us and challenge us, to help us to respond in repentance and faith. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what's it like to make a grand entrance? In May of 2004, uh, many Australians watched as our very own Mary Donaldson was plucked from obscurity and thrust into her new role as the Crown Princess of Denmark as she married Prince Frederick. Uh, hailing from Tasmania, it was her royal entrance onto the world stage and all the media and hype that will honestly follow every step of the rest of her life. But I guess at least she was aware of her entrance. Uh, unlike her son, uh, their firstborn who joined in October of 2005, where he made his royal uh, entrance onto the grand stage of history as he left the hospital as a four-day-old in the lobby of Copenhagen State University Hospital, unbeknownst to him, was ready. Hundreds of reporters, photographers and curious spectators as he came out uh, with his parents. No pressure on the new parents, obviously. And the experts were already busy predicting at that point, four days old, all the things that he would do as a future king of Denmark. Well, he turned 17 this year, actually, so time has flown. And we're not surprised by those kind of entrances from royalty. It's expected. You know, royal families have always had pomp and ceremony and a cast of thousands of people, onlookers, always about them. And usually when they do big events, they're well choreographed. You know, they're designed to depict the royal family as having authority, as appearing powerful, as you know, having it together, having great worldly status. And even the mode of transportation, of course, is meant to signify these things. And so you have royal carriages, or so often these days, a fleet of luxury cars. But as we commence our series in Luke, Behold the King, and look at this final section of the Gospel, we're reflecting on the question, how Jesus, tonight, how Jesus shows that he is our awaited King. What is his arrival like? How does Jesus show he is our awaited king? As we look at these events that are often referred to as Palm Sunday, 
how's his entrance onto the big stage in the capital city unfold? Well, we've got two answers to that question tonight, and the first of them is this. By his arrival, we know that he's awaited our awaited king because of his arrival. Have a look again at verses 35 to 38, where there are some similarities with all royals and then some big differences. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We'll try and take in this picture for a moment. Soak it in. In verse 36, we have the usual crowds, perhaps, associated with leaders and they're a vocal crowd at that they're shouting at this acclaim there's this great acclaim as the crowd shouts statements of praise for the miracles that they've seen Jesus perform and there may not have been the modern lining of um, barriers and offering of flowers and people trying to take selfies but we've got the ancient equivalent of adoration here we've got the spreading of people's cloaks on the dusty road that Jesus is about to walk along we don't get told here in Luke's account of the palm branches, by which we know it as Palm Sunday, but we do get it in Matthew, Mark and John. But here, notice, it's still a large royal entrance. There's a similarity, it might be said, uh, to other royal entrances to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city that he had set his face towards way back in chapter 9. Remember in Luke 9, verse 51, uh, it speaks about Jesus setting his face for Jerusalem. And so we've had this travel narrative since chapter 9 all the way here to chapter 19. As Jesus has taken a very roundabout um, journey with much teaching and miracles on the way, but he finally gets to his place of destination, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. But notice also in his arrival, there are some obvious differences to the average royal entrance. Uh, for one... Uh, the lack of fitting transportation. Now, where is the powerful horse which all military leaders would arrive on to assert their power, to demonstrate their control? Rather, we've got this almost embarrassing use of a young colt or a donkey. I guess we would say in modern terms, you know, the, the royal minders have slipped up here. You know, if the disciples got it wrong, this is very shoddy choreography. Um, you know, he's reducing the statement of his earthly power. This just doesn't look right. It confuses things. But, of course, it wasn't any royal minders, and it certainly wasn't even his disciples that messed this up. Jesus is the one who orchestrates his arrival on a donkey. Notice back in verses 29 and 31 how all this came about. We read there, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So notice in verse 29 that Christ and his disciples, now approaching the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is aware that he's making a big entrance into the city that he's been heading for, and he orchestrates this detail. Now, of course, on the one hand, the donkey 
symbolizes humility, you know, that the coming king is one who is humble. He's not uh, the warrior on a great steed. There's a deliberate contrast, if you like, with earthly trappings of power. He's a humble mission, perhaps, of goodwill. He's not the aggressor that's come to throw out the Roman authorities as he rides on his war horse. But apart from this signal of humility, what is going on here? Why does Jesus go to such lengths to do this? Well, in the parallel account in Matthew, uh, Matthew makes a big deal about quoting from Zechariah 9 verse 9 because what Jesus is doing is fulfilling a prophecy centuries earlier. And so though the writing of a cult doesn't really indicate much to us in terms of being impressive and it wouldn't have looked much to the Roman authorities, like who is this guy on the donkey? But for the Jews watching this, they knew that he was picking up this promised awaited king. Zechariah spoke of a day when there would be a king that didn't disappoint, one who would be different. And here is Jesus fulfilling that in a very clear way. But it's not just Christ's actions that are doing this, but it's also the words that his disciples in the crowd are saying. Did you notice their statements of praise? They actually are quoting themselves. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This was a psalm of ascent. People would sing this, say this, as they went up the hill to Jerusalem. At any time, they were on a pilgrimage heading for one of the feasts. And of course, this is the greatest of the feasts. As we go into this final week of Jesus' life, this is the Passover feast. You know, the whole city would swell to 10 times its normal population as people from all around the Roman Empire, let alone around Israel, would flow into the city just to be part of the people of the feast and the giving of sacrifices at this time. And so as this is happening, there is a big crowd, not just Jesus' disciples, but here are the disciples and perhaps some others who are shouting out the words from Psalm 118. And these were statements in the original context that referred to God and sometimes were used in light of the king, Israel's king at the time. And of course, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is both he is the son of god but he's also the king that they're waiting for he is the anointed one the christ or the messiah and so the taking up of these words by the crowd of disciples shows that they understand what's going on that they've been anticipating this moment finally he's going to reveal who he is he's going to come into the city and take what is rightfully his and so the words blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord are pretty incendiary words. They've added in the word king. In the original in Psalm 118, it is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the meaning was always that it was the king that was to come. And so they make that abundantly clear by using the word king. Blessed is the king. And so if you're observing this, if you're just one of the other pilgrims who doesn't know much about Jesus, or you're not sure about this one who's coming... You're going to be taken aback by this choreography. I mean, here is the crowd saying that it's the Christ. If, if you're not agreeing with this, you're going to be fairly upset at this moment. And that's what we read. Notice the Pharisees in the crowd are really riled up by this. They can't believe that they're saying this. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, you can't be saying this stuff. Jesus replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
So notice here, the Pharisees, representative of the religious leaders who have been opposing Jesus for the best part of three years at this point, and they're indignant. They want him to rebuke his disciples at this point. You know, they can't be saying this stuff. In their mind, it's blasphemous. You know, they don't accept that he's the Christ. He is not the one that we're waiting for. And so to speak about him in this way, well, that's no good. And more than that, well, he's going to be a threat. He's a threat to them. I mean, the Romans may have been the ones ruling Israel at the time, but really the religious leaders still had a tight control on the people. They were the ones that determined everyday life, what you got to eat, where, when you went, where you went. They had a stronghold still on the people, but this was going to be threatened if suddenly all the people start following this prophet from nowhere as they saw him. What if all the crowd went after him, like these disciples that are shouting this stuff? And so they're worried. And if it really got out of control, I mean, this is a big feast. Will they have a revolution on their hands? Will the Romans actually pay attention to what's going on? Are they going to come down on everything and perhaps remove the religious leaders from their favoured positions because of this turmoil? It can't be good either way. And given the triumphal entry that they're witnessing, they're worried. And so that makes what Jesus says in response to them all the more stunning. They'd be thinking, yeah, maybe he's not ready for this. Perhaps the crowd are putting it on him and he'll hush them down. No, 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 don't say these things. Rather, he responds with a quote. And this quote again from the Old Testament is from the prophet Habakkuk. And it's saying that if the disciples didn't praise the Father for the arrival of Jesus, the stones would cry out. Now, what is the context of that saying? Well, in the book of Habakkuk, it's a prophecy that is looking forward to a time where God might relieve his people. Again, they are being oppressed by foreign enemies. And so there's an injustice that the people cry out. And so God's people are longing for him to act, to intervene in the situation. And in that statement there, it's the very stones were crying out at the injustice in the day of Habakkuk that would soon be corrected when the Father's justice would fall on their enemies. And so when you take hold of that background and understand what Jesus is saying in this quote, this is a statement that the religious leaders of Israel are now the enemies of God's people. They may as well be a foreign power because they are rejecting the Christ. They are not accepting Jesus. And if they do that, they're going to be rightly judged. That's what Jesus is saying back to the Pharisees. Now, if they understood that, and we presume they did, they would have been shocked at that point. Who is this guy? We thought he would back down. He's doubled down. He's not just failing to rebuke his disciples. He's rebuking the religious leaders that they don't, they don't recognize him. And so you see this polarized reaction to Christ at this point. On the one hand, you've got these crowds of people acclaiming that he is the king. And on the other hand, you've got the religious leaders saying, who does this guy think he is? You notice as they referred to him and asked him to rebuke his disciples, they said, teacher. And perhaps that was as much as credit they were going to give him. Teacher, prophet, Nazareth perhaps a good man, but someone whose authority they felt free to reject. 
Well, is that the case with you tonight? You see, Jesus doesn't allow for fence sitters. It's going to become really clear in this last week of his life. He's a polarizing figure. You're either for him and you bow the knee to him as your king, or you are rejecting him, however you refer to him otherwise. Is he just somebody that can be dismissed for you, or is he truly the king who came to Jerusalem to die for the sins of humanity, your sins, in fulfillment of scripture? There's no other question in your life that will be asked of you which has more consequence. In his book, Mere Christianity, uh, the famous British writer C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote, A man who was merely a man and said and did the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon, or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about him just being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that alternative open to us. He did not intend to. You see, Lewis, I think, perfectly captures the vibe of the final chapters of Luke's Gospel. Jesus has come. The king has arrived. How will you respond? Are you with him or against him? There's no way that Jesus' uniqueness can just be brushed aside. And Luke's assertion in this passage is that Jesus is the promised king. The only question is, who is going to recognize his rule? And that brings me to a second answer. second answer to our question of, how do we know that Jesus is our awaited king? Well, it's not only his arrival, but it's also his knowledge and his authority. We know that he's our awaited king because of his knowledge and authority. Notice where things turn now from verse 41. Jesus, one minute, is being acclaimed and arguing with the Pharisees, and the next minute he's lamenting over the city of Jerusalem as this theme of rejection just keeps rolling out. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when you will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and your children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus is really emotional at this point. And I think we fail to take in quite what he is feeling because it's not about himself. I think a superficial reading at times for people is, well, he must be worried you know he knows he's going to his death he's been talking about it. it's going to happen in less than a week now jesus is not concerned for himself at all no that's not it although the crucifixion is going to be such a difficult moment as the garden of gethsemane shows to us what the people were doing was simply fulfilling the father's will at that point he had come to lay down his life he would go to the cross to offer salvation peace with god it was that peace that the people of Jerusalem needed, but they could not see it. 
They thought that peace came at the end of a sword and an army, and that if only there was a king who would come in and throw out the Romans, then they would have peace in Jerusalem. How wrong they were. The very thing they longed for was the thing that was going to flip on them. And so Jesus says, ironically, what you long for is the thing that's going to crush you. Because he knew that 35 years later, Jerusalem would be a wasteland. In AD 66, the Jews got sick of waiting. It was such a time of tumult. There was many false Christs in this period before Jesus and following. Anyone who offered that they would take on the Romans was seen as somebody worth following because they were just so desperate to remove them. And eventually in AD 66, it got out of control and they went and massacred the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. They won this massive victory, took control of their city and thought they'd won. Only briefly, (laughs) the Roman war machine just took a little while to get there. But when they did, it was devastating. They arrived and completely decimated the city. It was filled exactly as Jesus tells us here, not a stone on another. The temple, the city walls, everything demolished. If you go to Rome today, as I've been fortunate enough to do, you can go outside the Colosseum that everyone goes and visits. And outside this Colosseum, there's something just as important. It's this Arch of Titus in commemoration of General Titus, who led the armies of Rome to absolutely crush the Jews. They made the big mistake of arguing against the Roman Empire, and he was the one that executed the punishment. And he wandered back to Rome with his army behind him, uh, a group of Jews that were taken as prisoners, and everything that was valuable out of the temple and the palace having destroyed the place. And inside that arch, there are reliefs carved of Jews in a long line with chains of all the goods that he took. And to this day, a Jewish person will not walk under that arch, such as the humiliation and the degradation that the Romans inflicted on them. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And he announces to them that you're missing the peace that you long for. I'm your ticket but they couldn't see it. Well, once he entered the city, the mood changes again. He's gone from compassion, being in tears for these people who are going to be crushed, to being angry, righteously anger, angry about what is happening inside the temple. Have a look at verse 45 to 48. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Again, the polarization is just dramatic at this point. This is the sequel to Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, and it is the climax, because here we see the king's authority. He has come to claim his city, and he's not interested in the palace that represented the military power of the Romans. He goes straight to the temple, because what matters is people's relationship with the living God. And in verse 45, we're told that Jesus enters the temple area, and he is instantly driving out buyers and sellers. The temple consisted of an inner sanctuary surrounded by a series of courtyards further and further out. 
had the court of the priests, which only Jewish priests could enter, the court of the Israelites, which was for Israelite men to enter, the court of women, Jewish women to enter, the court of the Gentiles. And so for most of us here tonight, if not all, as close as we could get was the outer court, the fourth court, to show that we're at some distance from the God of Israel. But it's in that courtyard where Gentiles were meant to have the opportunity to come and worship the true God, to be able to sit down and to pray. But as Jesus gets there, he discovers that this is not a place of prayer. It's become the marketplace. It's been commercialized. And so here are the money changers. Here are the sellers selling animals ready as sacrifices for the temple. And so as Jesus enters this problem, he enters this market, he sees a big problem. Now, it's likely that the commercial transactions in the temple were dishonest. No doubt um, the uh, exchange rate was not what should have been. You had to exchange because you had to only get a silver coin from Tyre, which was the highest quality of the day. The Jews would only have the best payment at the temple. You had to have the right animal. And if you'd come from a long distance in the Roman Empire, it's not like you could bring the animal to sacrifice with you. And so it was necessary that people could sell animals. It was necessary to be able to exchange money. But they weren't to do it in a way that was greedy and that was taking from the people. That was problem number one. But the second problem was this invasion of the Gentile spaces I mentioned. And Jesus explains that reason in verse 46. Notice this phrase, house of prayer. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 56 verse 7. You see, so much of this is built on passages from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 56, the fuller phrase is, this will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Gentiles couldn't get any closer than a section that was just rampant with commerce. Hardly a house of prayer. The nations had effectively been shut out from worship of the true God. And that's why Jesus is angry, because it had always been the case that all people would come to God. He was about to lay down his life in just a few days' time, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. So Jesus is objecting to what's happened to the temple precinct. How have the religious leaders been so off-beam that they are allowing this to happen? And the fact that he can single-handedly remove all these people... We're told in the other Gospels with the whip that he's put together. But even so, how does he drive out a whole bunch except that in their own consciences, the traders know that they shouldn't be there? Historians tell us that this was a recent development, that they'd allowed these people into the court of the Gentiles. Previously, it was out in the porticos, in the porch outside the temple precinct. But it had crept in. So Jesus stakes a claim as the king who has come. Access to God, it's for all nations, all people. But at this point, I want to step back for a moment and think about this culmination of Christ's symbolic entry into the city. And not only is he staking his claim, his kingly authority, but he's focused on right worship of God. And Jesus doesn't come just to reform the old covenant practices as if that was sufficient. No, he comes to completely replace the system. He will be not only the great high priest who will be the one that replaces any religious leaders at that moment, but he'll also be the sacrifice. 
He is the temple. He is the whole symbolic picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system wrapped up into one person, one moment. He will be the once-for-all sacrifice so that what he is seeing done so poorly will end. And that old system had always pointed to this moment when he would come because he was the true fulfillment of it. Centuries and centuries of practice leads to this one time in history. And what's the reaction of the religious leaders who are supposedly waiting for the Christ to come? Well, there they are off sneaking around in the corners, plotting to kill him. How can we assassinate this guy? We don't even get their reaction to the cleansing of the temple. There's no comment in Luke's gospel, did you notice? They only comment after his teaching. After this cleansing, he's in there for several days teaching the people the right way. But the religious leaders will have nothing to do with it. Well, as we reflect on this passage tonight, I want to come back to this application for ourselves because it just keeps running through. Where do you stand? Who is Jesus to you? And as I conclude, I want to say it's a life and death choice. It will determine your eternity. But it's also going to determine what you do with the rest of your life. Because if you're going to submit to this one, his lordship, his kingship, things will have to change. Adoniram Judson uh, was an American man in the 1800s who would eventually become a missionary. But his own belief in Christ came about in really dramatic circumstances. He grew up in a Christian family. In fact, his father was a minister. But at the age of 16, he went off to Brown University and he was a precocious talent. By the age of 19, he had graduated from university as the top student. But in those three years, he had lost his faith in Jesus altogether. And it was because of a friend of his, his best friend uh, through university, Jacob Ames. He was a man who had a, a general belief in a God, but had rejected Christ. And slowly over that time, Judson was lured away from his trust. He kept that quiet and said nothing to his parents. But on his 20th birthday, he announced it to them and broke their hearts. He said he wasn't interested in Jesus. He was moving to New York. He was going to write for the theatre companies there. And he did that. He disappeared for about three years and lived a pretty reckless life by all accounts. But at one point, he was in a nearby village uh, staying overnight. And as he arrived late in the darkness, the innkeeper said, Oh, look, the room I'm giving you um, is not great if you hear noises in the night. It's because the guy in the next room is critically ill. And so he went in and struggled to get sleep. You hear lots of coming and going in the night, people coming to the next room, groans and noises. And he started thinking about who this person might be next door and, and whether this man, if he really was dying, was ready to face God you know, at the end of his life. Where did he stand? And then he started reflecting on himself and thought, well, I don't know where I stand now. And he started fear, being fearful of his own mortality. What did it mean? He really needed to think through this issue of God again. And he got up in the morning after a sleepless night and went down to the innkeeper and said, you know, what happened to the man? And the innkeeper just turned to him and bluntly said, he's dead. And he was shocked and sort of taken aback. And he sort of sat down 
for a minute and then said to him, look, do you know who he was? Like, um, what's the story of... He said, oh, yeah, he's a young man from the, the College of Providence, Ames. Jacob Ames is his name. And he was completely dumbfounded. He said, I sat down for hours. I couldn't move. I decided I had to work things out. I had to make peace with God. He became a Christian. He decided that there could not be other people like his good friend who had come to that position without somebody telling them about Jesus. He said of that night, that death should come to a country inn and snatch Jacob Ames, my dearest friend and guide, from the very next bed. This could not, simply could not, be pure coincidence. And he went on to devote himself to being a missionary. At the age of 24, he left for Burma. He arrived in India and William Carey said, don't go to Burma. No missionaries come back from there. They've all died within 12 months. He said, I'm going to Burma. Those people need to hear. Spent the next 38 years in Burma. Eventually died there. Lost three wives, seven children. But you know today, there's 2,700 Baptist churches in Burma, some of the descendants of whom are in our church today, in our Karenian Burmese congregations. 600,000 in the Baptist Convention of Myanmar. Well, there's a life laid down. I pray that we might in turn lay our lives down for our King. If you know Jesus as King, question is are you living for him let's pray heavenly father we want to acknowledge that jesus came with all authority as your eternal son he came on a rescue mission he came to seek and to save the lost and though many rejected him we thank you for those that observed and understood that he was the promised Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us today to recognize him as our own king, that you might help us to live in the light of his rule, that we might honor you, that we might bring glory to you with our lives. Help us to respond to him. Help us to realize that there is no sitting on the fence with Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name.